I think what is surprising is the steepness and the rapidity with which the market has adjusted. This is the first time in 40 years that the market has been grappling with inflation uh, for a very long period of time. Growth rates have risen and they have fallen, but it's always been fairly comfortable to say, well, inflation is on a declining trend. And when you think that rates are either stable or heading lower, then it's pretty easy to turn around and give yourself a valuation multiple that you want to apply to a stock. What we've seen in the last couple of months, I think, is uncertainty about inflation, uncertainty about growth. And so the market is sort of all over the board in terms of, well, earnings have been pretty good this last time around, but what is the right multiple to apply to those earnings? If we think rates are going to settle back in the 2% range, which which really is our, our base case over the next couple of years, uh, then that's one multiple. If you think they're going to edge higher and settle closer to 4%, then your multiple has to be much lower. That was Christopher Smart, head of the Barings Investment Institute. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and today we're talking about inflation, what's causing it, where it may go from here, and what investors can do about it. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Smart. Christopher is head of the Barings Investment Institute and chief global strategist for Barings. Prior to joining the firm in 2018, he served in the Obama administration, first as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, where he led the U.S. response to the European financial crisis, and then at the White House as Special Assistant to the President, where he was Principal Advisor on Trade, Investment, and a wide range of global economic issues. Before government service, Christopher spent much of his career managing emerging markets investment strategies. In this conversation, Christopher and I focus on inflation. Christopher explains the inflation picture today and how it compares to history and how it is impacting the economic growth picture. We talk about the path ahead for central bankers and whether or not avoiding stagflation is a possibility. And finally, we discuss what this all means for capital markets and for investors trying to navigate through this period, including which asset classes may be better placed to weather this storm. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Smart. All right, Christopher Smart, welcome back to the Streaming Income Podcast. Greg, it's great to be with you as always. I appreciate you being here. And um, all right, so today we are talking about inflation, of course. It is the topic that is on everyone's mind uh, at the moment. So uh, I'd like to dive in and hopefully talk about uh, the impact of inflation that we're seeing on the economy and on capital markets specifically and how investors should be thinking about it. But maybe before we get into that, I'm hoping uh, that you might be able to just set the stage for us, put the recent inflation spike kind of into some context, if you can, uh, and maybe explain just uh, where exactly this inflation is coming from. Well, I would back up. Uh, I was going to start by backing up a couple of years, but maybe it makes sense to back up 40 years. Uh, just to remind everybody that we have been through roughly four decades of a global economy in which inflation has been edging ever lower and interest rates have been edging ever lower. And it wasn't that long ago where we were kind of rooting for a little bit of inflation to take root 
because there was a concern that the global economy might tip into deflation. Uh, there's a lot of debate within the economic community about what has caused this over the last four decades. People pointing to the advent of globalization, large new workforces from China and India and other emerging markets coming onto the scene. Uh, there are demographic explanations around in wealthier countries, older generations saving more for retirement, spending less, and that takes some of the heat out of, uh, out of inflationary pressures. And of course, technology has done a lot to replace workers in many cases and keep wage pressures, wage demands under, under control. And in, in any case, whatever the reason for the last 40 years, uh, we were obviously hit with a shocking pandemic two years ago. And there was concern again that that would lead to a collapse in demand. We saw a massive response on the part of governments really around the world, spending more, um, in some cases taxing less, and at the same time, very vigorous responses by the Fed, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, other central banks around the world to inject a lot of liquidity into the system. And I think that's what we're facing today as the recovery uh, takes hold. We're wondering whether, first of all, that was too much of a response uh, in the throes of the crisis. Um, but we're also really catching up with a rebalancing of uh, demand as it normalizes and supply as it's trying to, to catch up with this demand. So I think that's the broader um, background against which we are trying to analyze the CPI numbers in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere that are coming across our screens today. And so uh, in, in terms of how inflation feeds through directly to the economy and has the potential to you know, slow economic growth, I mean, there's, you're starting to hear talk about different commentators talking about recession, et cetera. I mean, is that path as simple as you know, higher oil prices and higher food prices uh, leave less money in the pockets of consumers and therefore you know, economic growth slows down? Or is there another kind of mechanism uh, here where inflation feeds through directly to that, you know, impact that economic growth picture? Well, I think it is uh, primarily, as you say, uh, higher prices uh, for consumers, and consumers are two-thirds of the U.S. economy. Um, we think that in particular because it has been such a sudden shock, it, it is going to lead to a much cooler uh, forecasts for demand in terms of consumer spending. I think it takes a little while to feed through. People sort of notice it, and then they start complaining about it. Um, they don't cancel their summer vacation plans quite yet, but maybe um, by the time Christmas rolls around, it's a it's a little bit of a shorter shopping list for for friends and family. Um, that's the main way we think it's going to take um, effect. But also, tighter monetary policy, higher interest rates means that it's more expensive to borrow money. Um, there will also be a, a sense of consumer and business sentiment cooling to some extent. And I think all of those together will lead to a slower economy. And, you know, it will do some of the Fed's work for it. The Fed is obviously hiking rates uh, through the summer into the fall and said it will continue to do so. But by the time we get to the fall, um, we expect that CPI in particular, consumer price inflation, will be on a downward trend. 
how sharp a downward trend is is open to vigorous debate, but but at least the lines will be converging rather than diverging. Okay, so so let's talk about the options that central bankers have. So there's uh, you know no shortage of criticism of central bankers uh, in the media today. Uh, you know, a lot of kind of Monday morning quarterbacking around. Indeed. you know, could the Fed and BOE have you know moved quicker to in- address inflation? Uh, but let's not worry about the past. Let's let's focus on the future here, and let's think about you know what their options uh, are. So I, I'm curious, you know, from your view and, and given all your experience in this realm, do you think that they have a realistic path to avoid stagflation? and or recession. Actually, let me just do a little bit of Monday morning quarterbacking because I think the Fed and other central banks have been a little unfairly criticized. While they were responding, it was still a time when we weren't sure that you know vaccines were going to work. We weren't sure that people were going to go back to their offices or back to their jobs as quickly as they did. Um, obviously, in retrospect, they probably wish they had started tightening earlier. Um, but it's always uh, much easier to see that in, in retrospect. Uh, in terms of what they can do now, central bankers really only have a couple of very blunt tools. Maybe it's three, I would mention. One is they can talk and they can set expectations, and they have clearly done that in both the U.S. and increasingly in Europe in terms of saying they are focused on price stability, they will bring this under control. Um, the second and much more important tool is setting um Uh, interest rates. And you can see the Fed has moved from saying they are not going to move at all to we're going to move 25 basis points at every meeting to now increasingly we're going to move 50 basis points for the next couple of meetings. Uh, And so I think, you know, that clearly is getting the market's attention. And you can see that in the the way the yield curve has reacted. Um, The third element that they have, and this is a little bit more complex and technical, is that they have obviously bought a lot of assets onto their balance sheet to stabilize financial markets through the crisis, and they're going to start unwinding those purchases, uh, and that quantitative tightening will proceed at the same time. I'll just say that's a very um, technical conversation in terms of the impact that will have, and I don't think uh, we're very sure what will be going on in terms of market disruptions around the quantitative tightening. Probably at this stage, it's a less important dynamic given that the Fed is really proceeding down a path of hiking 50 basis points at its next meeting, maybe 50 basis points at the following meeting. And that's what's going to be driving the overall tightening of the economy. The European Central Bank has also indicated that it plans to, uh, I think the market is pricing in a number of hikes uh, between now uh, and, and the end of the year. Got it. And I, and I know that you and your team do quite a bit of scenario analysis kind of planning. Uh, I mean, where are you coming out on that today in terms of probability of recession, let's say in the next 12 to 24 months? The probability of recession, I think, in Europe is actually quite high. Uh, European growth has traditionally been lower than it has been in the U.S. Um, and the shock to the European economy from Ukraine and Russia sanctions, I think has been really dramatic. You've all along what we were worried about for European inflation has been really focused on prices of natural gas, prices of oil. Um, we had expected those to start normalizing again, you know, through this spring. And that has clearly not happened. 
Europe is also now facing a pretty wrenching transition of finding new sources of energy supplies, which will be more expensive, not those found in Russia, but they're looking to North Africa, imported liquid natural gas, those sorts of alternative sources of energy that will be more expensive. And then an expensive transition away from uh, exports that, that naturally went to Russia. They'll be looking for new markets for their exports. So I think Europe has a, a very serious risk of recession this year. In the U.S., I think we're less concerned just because we're starting from such a point of strength. And if you look out 12 to 18 months, which is really our window of our scenarios, I think it's really hard to see a U.S. consumer with an unemployment rate at 3%, ample savings, lots of choices for jobs if they want to move to another job, quit rates being quite high. And then if you look in the corporate sector, companies still looking to spend a lot of money on capital expenditure, still looking to build out more resilient supply chains. You know, all of that leads us to believe that there are headwinds, there will be a deceleration in the U.S., but it's hard to imagine a recession. Okay, well, that's really helpful context and, and interesting to see the kind of divergent paths uh, here between uh, Europe and the U.S., and that's a great reminder that we're kind of starting from a point of strength uh, in the U.S., so I guess that's that's somewhat encouraging. Um, now, what's maybe less encouraging is you know some of the activity that we've seen in capital markets uh, recently. So, uh, obviously, markets have gotten quite worried uh, about inflation, uh, perhaps uh, about the potential for a recession or a slowdown, depending on how you want to read the data. But um, uh, you know, we've seen severe volatility in equity markets. I think as of this. Recording, uh, the NASDAQ is down over 25% year to date. We've got weakness in credit markets now. We've got rising oil prices and a, in a much stronger U.S. dollar year to date. So uh, a lot of fairly dramatic moves. Uh, here we are, not quite halfway through the year here. Um, I guess one thing I'm curious about is that, you know, looking at the moves that you've seen so far uh, to date, uh, if you would have known, uh, you know, looking back to January, if you would have known that we would be in this situation today where rates have continued to move higher, where inflation has spiked and is a major concern, are, would you have expected the moves that we've seen uh, so far or, or is anything kind of surprising you in terms of market reaction so far? Well, I guess I should say yes, of course I would have expected this. I think what is surprising is the is the steepness and the rapidity with which the market has adjusted. Again, if I take a step back, it makes sense. Again, I'll go back to the broader historical context. This is the first time in 40 years that the market has been grappling with inflation uh, for a very long period of time. Growth rates have risen and they have fallen, but it's always been fairly comfortable to say, well, inflation is on a declining trend. And when you think that rates are either stable or heading lower, then it's pretty easy to turn around and give yourself a valuation multiple that you want to apply to a stock. What we've seen in the last couple of months, I think, is uncertainty about inflation, uncertainty about growth. And so the market is sort of all over the board in terms of, well, Earnings have been pretty good this last time around, but what is the right multiple to apply to those earnings? If we think rates are going to settle back in the 2% range, which 
which really is our, our base case over the next couple of years, um, then that's one multiple. If you think they're going to edge higher and settle closer to 4%, then your multiple has to be much lower. So I think that's the debate that we've seen quite vigorously in the markets in the past several weeks and led to that kind of sharp sell-off. But again, if you come back and look at some of the broader fundamentals in the market, and if you believe, as we do, that you know this inflationary path is headed back lower, it may not get to 2% this year, it may settle at a higher level, maybe a 3% rate, but that wouldn't be the end of the world either. As long as the market kind of gets comfort at where it's going to settle, then it can start turning around to apply those interest rate assumptions to equities and other investments that they will be making. That makes sense. So if you think about um, if you think about trying to conduct an asset allocation exercise here, uh, if you are a you know institutional investor at an insurance company or a pension fund or wealth management firm, and you're looking out over the next, let's say, 12, 18, 24 months. And let's say you assume we continue to be in a rate hiking cycle. Now, it sounds like your longer term expectations are maybe that rates come back down. Um, but let's assume for the sake of this question, anyhow, that uh, you know we continue to be in a rate hike cycle for you know that time period. Let's assume inflation maybe not continuing at current levels but but perhaps you know higher than we've seen in the last you know couple of decades let's assume that's with us for a while uh, in that type of scenario what types of investment strategies or asset classes might one expect to outperform and maybe history is a helpful guide here maybe it's not well as you, as you mentioned Greg we we develop a number of scenarios. And I, I described our primary scenario, which we're calling the stagflationary shock. We have a secondary scenario, which is more or less in line with what you have just described, which we're calling higher for longer, where inflation is rising, the rates are rising. We also think that's probably an environment in which growth continues for the next 12 or 24 months. So that um, in that kind of environment, you might get strength uh, in, in commodity prices. You might get strength in interest rate sensitive you know, financial sectors and firms that continue to have uh, pricing power uh, will be able to pass on a lot of those increased costs to their consumers. And again, that depends a lot, not just on sector analysis, but really company-by-company company analysis. And so those are the kinds of places we think probably will do well in that somewhat gloomy scenario that you paint. And then in that scenario, curious what you think uh, from a kind of credit perspective, uh, you know, what would you anticipate? I mean, would you expect, and I, and I know that you are not necessarily the high-yield expert at our firm, we have many of those, but uh, curious if... Um, if you would expect kind of defaults to rise um, or if you would expect kind of below investment grade credit to not be a terrible place to be. I'm thinking about things specifically like floating rate loans, uh, which obviously adjust uh, to higher rates over time. Um, and then also kind of thinking about other asset classes like real estate, which is a natural inflation hedge. I mean, do you think that those could be some fairly interesting places to search for opportunities? I do, and I'm glad you raised real estate. But but to your point about credit and um, the high yield space, uh, you know, as rates rise, obviously it becomes a uh, a more challenging environment than when rates are lower. 
for companies that that are looking to access um, financing. But I think what I hear from our high yield teams is that again, just like the U.S. consumer is in a place of extraordinary strength, many of the companies that they analyze um, have been able to tap capital markets. They don't face any immediate refinancing risk. Now, defaults have been essentially zero for the last couple of years, so clearly they will rise from here and there will be some winners and some losers. But I think that's where you really depend on that credit by credit, uh, company by company analysis of not just which sectors might do well, but which firms and which managements are able to you know, navigate the dynamic interest rate environment. Uh, but again, going back to the point I made earlier, able to pass on higher prices to their customers and protect, protect their margins in that kind of an environment. When you mention real estate, obviously, there's a lot of secular things going on in the real estate cycle. And I know you've talked to a number of our colleagues on this podcast about where we're headed as people go back to their offices in different patterns, as different cities become more attractive because people are able to work remotely in some cases. Um, those are part of the broader secular trends that I think investors need to keep in mind. But clearly, real assets, real estate, uh, equity in particular, I think you know, looks more attractive in an environment where inflation lingers for longer. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of interesting dynamics there to talk about. And yes, we have had some of uh, our colleagues uh, from some of these asset classes on this podcast, and I expect we're going to have quite a few more uh, in the coming months because there's so much to dive into here, both on the credit side and for asset classes uh, like real estate. There's, um, you know, it, it, it seems to me um, that perhaps we're heading into more of a credit pickers environment, which I think you kind of alluded to. Uh, where there's going to be winners and losers, and you know there's going to be quite a bit of idiosyncratic risk, uh, as uh, one of our colleagues uh, on this podcast uh, recently mentioned. Uh, so, uh, having large teams of analysts to kind of sort through credit by credit is probably not a bad uh, asset to have uh, at this point in the cycle. No, I think that's exactly right. And I'm, you know, I'm the macro guy, but I think this is very much a micro uh, environment for investors, where it's it's much more important to get the names right than the uh, asset classes. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, Christopher, Will, uh, this has been a great whirlwind tour through your uh, your thoughts on inflation. Um, can I just ask you as a final question what you're going to be personally watching in the months ahead? So you mentioned you know different scenarios that your team has, but kind of curious what you're going to be keeping an eye on to, to kind of give you a hint of which scenario we might be uh, headed toward. I would mention a couple of things. Uh, we're going to be watching clearly developments in Russia and Ukraine very closely. To what extent there will be continued disruptions to the supplies of not just energy, but other important commodities. Um, Russia is obviously a great exporter, not just of food and fertilizer, but nickel, alumina, timber, um, uh, a lot of things that feed through uh, to price pressures in the rest of the economy. Um, secondly, we didn't really mention this so much, but uh, COVID is something I think we still have to keep in mind, maybe not in terms of the threat of more lockdowns, but the threat of more disruptions to supply chains. We've seen that most recently in, uh, in China with renewed lockdowns. Other parts of Asia seem to be less susceptible, but I think that's something we have to keep in mind. And then Maybe more importantly, uh, and this is the one that is so hard to gauge, but it is the uh, 
measures of inflation expectations in Europe, in the U.S., and elsewhere, where consumers, at least at this stage, are not so concerned. They're very upset and worried about current inflation, but they don't believe it's going to feed through in the longer term, at least according to surveys right now. That, if it continues, if this continues to linger for longer, the longer it lingers, I guess that's a little bit of a poem I'm developing for you here, Greg. <laughs> um, but the longer it lingers, I think the more risk we have that it will be harder for the Fed to bring under control in the stagflation shock scenario that I that I described. And so that, I think, is, is what um, th- those are the three things that we'll be spending most of our time on in the months ahead. Okay. Thank you for that context. Yeah, that's it's clear to me listening to you describe that inflation expectations uh, point, uh, you know, just why this is such an important thing for the Fed and, and BOE and other central bankers to try to get under control. So we will be watching that closely uh, in the months ahead uh, and in the developments there. And I'm sure your team will be monitoring that very closely. So, um, you know, maybe just lastly, uh, for listeners who want to keep up to date with the latest from you and your team, uh, who are analyzing the Fed and, uh, of course, all these macro developments on a very regular basis, uh, where should they go? Well, one, one great place to go, of course, is bearings.com, where you can get uh, under the, the Institute's page all of our research, um, our macro dashboard that comes out nine times a year, our weekly updates on economic data, uh, my column, uh, Leading Thoughts, and then my colleagues publish regular, very interesting pieces on topics like this, inflation, margin pressures, impacts on uh, capital markets and the like. So invite everybody to, to find us at bearings.com. Fantastic. Everybody go check that out. And uh, if you're on Twitter, go to follow Christopher Smart as well, at CSmart, uh, where he is uh, sharing kind of real time uh, his latest uh, insights. I always uh, really enjoy uh, following you there uh, as well, Christopher. So uh, thank you very much, Christopher. This has been great. Appreciate your thoughts today and uh, look forward to getting you back on the show again soon. Greg, always good to be with you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to episode number eight of season six of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, please make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.